0: All right, I invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to Luke 2. A very familiar story, which was read for us earlier. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, you can probably find one in one of the seat backs in front of you. And you'll find Luke 2 on page 2, uh, 724 in that Bible. You know, we're so used to hearing this Christmas story, that we often lose sight of how mixed up it is. Uh, Of course, we shouldn't be surprised that it's mixed up. If if you've been here the last few weeks, as we've been beginning our journey through Luke's gospel, we've seen how in sending Jesus, God was turning the world upside down, uh, drawing close uh, to insignificant and overlooked people like Mary to raise them up, while overlooking and tearing down the privileged and the comfortable. And we're going to see that action continue in today's mixed-up story. One of the few things about this story that is not mixed up is how it begins. It begins, just as it should, uh, with the most powerful man in the world, Caesar Augustus, supreme emperor of the mighty Roman Empire. An inscription found in Rome gives us an idea of Caesar's, Caesar's status in that day. It refers to him as divine Augustus Caesar, son of God, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the world. At that point in history, the whole Western world was unified under Caesar's iron grip of control. And at the beginning of our story, we learn that Caesar orders a census. Now, you can be sure that this census wasn't to collect demographic data or to redistrict voting precincts. No, this census was to collect taxes. Because under Roman rule, every adult in the empire who was not a Roman citizen, but who was one of the subject people who had been subjected by the Roman empire, was required to pay a flat per-person head tax to Caesar. Now, this head tax was just one more among many other taxes which were crippling the people, especially the poor people. And so the Jews deeply resented this tax and the census which administered it. Um, It was a symbol of Roman slavery and Roman oppression. And so you can just imagine that Joseph probably resented that he had to interrupt his life and shut down his business and leave his home to journey to his ancestral Uh, hometown of, of Bethlehem, just so he could be counted by Rome, so they could impose their tax on him and his family. But Caesar was in charge, and whatever Caesar wished was everyone else's command. And it's in that context that the Christmas story begins. My kids have a children's book which puts it this way, so Caesar, the Roman ruler, the king of the whole Roman world, began counting all his people to show everyone how great he was. What Caesar did not know was that God, the ruler of, or the world's true ruler, the king of the universe, was getting ready to show everyone how great he was. But here's where the story starts to get mixed up, because, of course, how does God show everyone how great he is? He sends a little baby to a peasant family in a far out of the way corner of Caesar's vast empire. Let's look at this story and we'll pick up in verse 5 now where we first begin to notice this story getting mixed up. Because Mary is with Joseph on this trip to Bethlehem. Now this is very strange if you stop and think about it and I never did. <laughs> you hear this story so many times, but when I finally did stop and think about it, I realized, Lee, after doing a little study, legally Mary is not required to go with Joseph to register. She doesn't have to be there on this trip, as far as Caesar's concerned. But So given that, let me give you three rais- reasons I think it's pretty strange that Mary is with Joseph. First, because in that culture, engaged couples did not spend much time together. When a man and a woman became engaged, the man went off to build an apartment for his new bride, usually in his father's house, and often this project took a year, and in the meantime, the young woman was under the care and the authority of her father in that culture. Um, After all, we think, best we can tell, Mary is probably about 13 or 14 years old at this point in time. And so that in, culture, in that culture, her interactions with her future husband would be minimal to non-existent during the t- period that they were engaged. They for sure would not be allowed to take an unchaperoned road trip together to another town, so why is Mary with Joseph if they aren't married yet? Second, childbirth in that day was strictly a woman's business. And remember, Mary is nine months pregnant. A woman in labor back then would be attended maybe by her mother, maybe by her sisters, usually by a female midwife. This wasn't an activity that men participated in. But here is Mary about to give birth with only Joseph, a man for accompaniment. And third, Mary, very pregnant, is on a rough 80-mile trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, tradition is kind to Mary. We give her a donkey to ride on, but we don't know if they had a donkey. There's a good chance they walked. Maybe, uh, or just imagine, right? Nine months pregnant, traveling 80 miles with no car. How far is Middletown? Is that 80 miles? You know, no car to get there. Go, you're nine months pregnant. Maybe you have to walk. Maybe you're riding on the back of a bumpy animal you're sleeping in strange places at night. Why is Mary even on this trip? Why isn't she home with her mother and her father? Well, I think the best guess I can come up with is that when Mary turned out to be pregnant, her parents didn't quite believe her story that really I was, I've been a good girl, an angel appeared to me, and I miraculously became pregnant. I mean, would you believe that if your teenage daughter turned up pregnant and gave you that story? And people back then really knew how to punish young people who didn't stay pure until their wedding night. I think there's a decent chance that the treatment Mary received from her family was so nasty that it was in utter desperation that Mary chose to be with Joseph on this trip. Perhaps she had no choice, no home, nowhere to belong other than with Joseph. Because Matthew's gospel tells us that Joseph had had an angel visitor of his own who had assured him that he could trust Mary's story. Okay, the second mixed up thing about this story is where Mary has baby Jesus. Now this isn't mixed up because it's surprising in that culture, but rather because it's not what 2,000 years of Christmas tradition have taught us. We all know Jesus was born in a stable, right? We've been singing about it, we've seen the the pictures this morning. There was an ox, a donkey, probably some sheep looking on because there's no room in the inn, right? Well, recent Bible translations, including the new NIV, no longer say that because we now know that although the Greek word uh, often translated inn could mean inn, it more usually is a guest room or a, a lodging quarters. And we also know that it's doubtful that a small town like Bethlehem, which wasn't on any major roads, even had an inn. Well, if Mary and Joseph aren't staying in a stable out back of an inn, then where are they staying? Well, there's a good chance they're staying in the home of a peasant family, perhaps a relative of Joseph's. And let me explain why. Back then, the houses of most common people had three rooms. We have a floor plan here. Um, A small entry room, that's on your left. Then a main room, which you'd often go up several steps to get to, it's a lot smaller than it looks on here, probably the size of a small bedroom. And um, then, because hospitality was so important in that culture, and because there weren't many inns, a guest room would often be attached to the end of the house with its own private entrance. And it's likely that it's in this guest room that there is no room because it was already filled with one or more other families of relatives who had come for the census. And that would have left the need to squeeze Joseph and Mary in the main room of the house. And uh, here's the other important thing. Most people back then kept their goats or cows or whatever barnyard animals they had in the entryway of their house at night believe it or not, (laughs) because rarely did anyone have an outside stable. Remember, the entryway is a few steps lower than the living area. Often the floors were made of dirt back then. Um, You can see it better in this picture here. And and so you could bring your animals in at night, you could bar the top of the stairs, so of course they couldn't get upstairs, and that's where you would keep them safe and a little bit warm, because again, most people didn't have a shed or a, a stable back then. And often the animal's manger or feed box would be upstairs by the, uh, by the entryway, right at the edge of the living area, uh, at the level of the animal's heads. Um, sometimes the mangers were placed on the upper floor, sometimes they were actually dug into the upper floor. And so for a family crowded together upstairs with one or more other families, a manger would have made a convenient makeshift cradle, especially when poor people back then had very little furniture. Probably no one had a cradle if you were were not upper class. So what's the point of all this? Well, this is where the shepherds come in. Because that shepherds are even factors in this story is mixed up as well. In that culture, shepherds were just about the lowest rung of the social ladder. Think about it. They spent most of their time outside with animals. They no doubt smelled like animals. They had few chances to bathe, being out in the fields a good part of the year. In Jewish law, they were considered perpetually unclean, and so in many ways, they were cut off from the rest of society. Often, shepherding was the job given to the the youngest child, as it was given to the young boy David, youngest of all his brothers before he became king. If you think of of a chart showing status or hierarchy, you have Caesar Augustus way at the top, um, and way down near the bottom you have these shepherds. And where does God send his angel to rejoice and announce the birth of his son, the new king of his people? to the very bottom. It's like if God was going to announce the most momentous news the world had ever heard today, and God skipped CNN, God passed by Washington, D.C., and Manhattan, and London, and Beijing, and God just told the news to a few squeegee boys and homeless people. What kind of God is this? What kind of king is this who comes into the world in this way? Now here's where the manger comes in again and connects with the shepherds. Imagine you're the shepherds. You're low class people in a society that's largely based on class. And you know your station and so you stay with your own. If you're a shepherd, you wouldn't dare to show up at a palace or at a mansion or even in a middle-class home because you know you'd be thrown out on your ear. You'd have no business there, and you'd know it. You'd know you'd probably be greeted with, go back to your filthy fields and your stinking animals, you shepherd scum. And so here are these shepherds. They're surrounded by angels with God's glory shining all around them out in the fields. And the angels are are praising God and telling the shepherds that the king, the Messiah, everyone's been waiting for has been born over in nearby Bethlehem. And here's a sign for you, the angels say, for you shepherds. The baby isn't in a palace. The baby isn't even in a middle-class home. No, the baby is wrapped in strips of cloth, which is the way common people wrap their babies back then. And the baby is in a manger, in an ordinary common house just like yours. Do you know what this sign meant for the shepherds? It meant they could go and see this king. Because this royal baby was born into a house like theirs into a place where they would belong, a place where they would be welcomed by people like themselves, by poor people, by people of low status. Is that amazing or what? On this first Christmas, something has happened. God was doing something. God was beginning a new work, bringing a new kind of king into the world. And who is this happening among Not Caesar's palace or court, not the well-to-do, not the comfortable, but the poor and the despised. And so the shepherds go, they they run off to see this child, a king born for them, for people like them. And of course, Mary and Joseph are not high-class people, and so they are willing to invite in shepherds. And to share in joy with them together in what God was beginning to do for their sort of folk. As Mary put it back in chapter 1, a couple weeks ago we looked at this text with Greg Howe. In her son, God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. In Jesus, God was beginning something, something mixed up, something which was bound to turn the world upside down. So what's the application of all this for us today? Well, there's a lot of things we could think about, but let's think about Christmas. How do you celebrate Christmas? A holiday where we remember, as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians one 27 to 27-28, that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And so how do you celebrate this great mix-up? Did you get carried away with the corporate image of Christmas? where our goal is to put hundreds of dollars worth of gifts under the tree, and we we wear our $100, $200 sweaters in our nice, uh, warm, richly decorated houses. If you ask me, that approach is is quite out of tune with the Christmas song that Luke is singing for us here. Because according to Luke's Christmas story, Christmas is about God coming to be among the poor and the despised and the empty-handed. And if the rich and the affluent want to join in, we are welcomed. But only if we open our hands and we let go and we become like those who have not. I'll tell you practically how our family is is trying to work this out. It's always a work in progress. We've adopted the old European tradition called St. Nicholas Day, which happens back on December 6th. And we give our gifts, modest gifts, gifts, around $30, give or take, uh, at that time. And and so Christmas is is then cleared up to focus on Jesus and to give Jesus a gift. And so um, as a family, we go through one of those Christmas catalogs that groups like World Vision send out, um, and and we remind our kids that Jesus identifies with the poor and that he uh, said that whatever you've done for one of the least of these, you've done for me. And so the kids who've been saving up their God money, they, they pull it together and Ann and I add to it. And then we go through the catalog and, and we pick out some goats or some chickens or, or a well for clean water or an educational package for a child. And we cut out those pictures from the catalog and uh, put them for Jesus in the manger. And, and then, of course, we actually buy those things um, as a gift for Jesus. Um as a way of you know, giving to those in need, as a way of giving a gift to Jesus. And of course, that's not the only way to do it. Um, but hopefully, it's at least in the spirit of the Christmas that we read about in Luke's Gospel here. Not, not the Christmas of Hallmark, or the Christmas of corporate America, but the Christmas of the Bible, the Christmas of Jesus, the mixed-up Christmas that we read about in Luke's story. So here's my challenge for you, this Christmas from Luke's Christmas story. What can you do to start letting your Christmas get a little bit more mixed up? Merry Christmas.